The special counsel in Jared Kushner. Is Ron DeSantis the new Jeb Bush? Exclamation point. And it turns out the safest place on earth to hide your stash is the White House. I'm John Berman, and this is CNN Tonight, or CNN very nearly tomorrow. And tomorrow, we might still be counting the new developments in the investigation into Donald Trump, because they have been coming in every few minutes. Jared Kushner before the grand jury. Hope Hicks before the grand jury. Alyssa Farrah Griffin before federal prosecutors. And we will get to all of it. But at the center of it, three major questions that perhaps reveal what the special counsel is up to. Now, a warning to our viewers, these might seem insultingly obvious or simple, but they are legally pivotal. Number one, did Donald Trump know he lost the election? Number two, did Donald Trump say he lost the election? Number three, how on earth could he not have known he lost the election? And are you actually serious this could be a viable defense? This is at the forefront tonight as CNN has confirmed that the president's son-in-law testified before the grand jury investigating Donald Trump's actions around January 6th. The New York Times reports he was asked, Jared Kushner was asked, if he ever heard Trump acknowledge he lost the election. The Times says Kushner is said to have maintained that it was his impression that Mr. Trump truly believed the election was stolen, according to a person briefed on the matter. However, we also know that former Trump communications director and CNN contributor Alyssa Farrah Griffin has been interviewed by federal prosecutors. And she earlier told the January 6th committee that Trump said to her after the election, quote, can you believe I lost to Joe Biden? There are also new developments in the Mar-a-Lago documents case with the special counsel lashing out at the Trump team for their request to to delay the trial. We're going to have more on that shortly. First, what did Trump know and how could he not have known it? With me here, Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former attorney, host of the Maya Couple podcast, principal of Crisis X and author of Revenge. But first, Michael, stand by. I want to bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. And Ellie, I want to break down this line of questioning. I want to set the legal framework for this discussion. Why is the special counsel asking people, did Donald Trump know he lost the election? Because they're trying to establish intent. That's, by the way, the hardest thing for a prosecutor to do. The best possible way you could establish that Donald Trump knew he lost is if he acknowledges that he lost. You know, we saw a lot of testimony in the January 6th committee from people who said, well, Donald Trump was told he lost. Bill Barr told him that he lost. Ivanka Trump told him that he lost. That's okay. But the problem with that is there was other people maybe delusional people, but other people, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, telling him, no, you didn't lose. There's been massive fraud and you need to fight it. And so the best possible proof that he knew what he was doing was wrong, that he had to know it was unlawful, is if he acknowledges it as Alyssa, our our colleague's uh, testimony seems to establish, and others. Well, let me play testimony before the January 6th committee from both Alyssa Farrah Griffin and Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, Chair Mark Milley, who did suggest that Trump said some version of he lost or he knew. Listen. So we're in the Oval and there's a discussion going on. And the president says, I think it's, it could have been Pompeo, but he says words to the effect of, yeah, we lost, we need need to let that issue go to the next guy, meaning President Biden. I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval just to like, give the president the headlines and see how he was doing. And he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? So what you do is you produce that testimony to a jury or a grand jury and say, if you believe this, if you believe Alyssa Farrah Griffin, 
and General Mark Milley, there you go. There's the intent. That's a crucial part of the case. So that's why this testimony is so important. Now, there may be other testimony. Jared Kushner saying, I don't think he actually thought he lost. That maybe we're getting into sort of, uh, you know, epistemological questions about what's in his mind. How does one ever know what they know? So, so to be so clueless right. or to be so misinformed or misguided to think or believe that you lost the election or won the election, I should say. Right. That could be a viable defense? Well, I think the category it would fall under legally is what we call advice of counsel, meaning here I am, Donald Trump, and I have these lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, telling me that I can fight this. Or to use the example of pressuring Mike Pence, well, John Eastman, constitutional scholar, former Supreme Court clerk, he's telling me the vice president does have this authority. I can rely on that. That's the defense. Okay, counselor, stand by. Michael Cohen, obviously you were, you know, persona non grata for some time before any of this actually happened. However, you spent a lot of time with Donald Trump. You know how he talks. You know how he thinks. As you look at this, do you honestly think he didn't know or believe he lost the election? He never thought that he would lose to Joe Biden. That is true. He never thought he could possibly lose. He considers Joe Biden to be a loser. And as a loser, how could he as a winner lose to a loser. That's the circular nonsense that goes on inside of Donald Trump's head. What he's going to end up saying, how they're going to prove intent by Donald, it's a very difficult... Ellie and I have had this conversation dozens of times, dozens of times, where I've always said that Donald is going to play the intent card. He believes he won. If he doesn't believe it, you'll never know because that's what a narcissistic sociopath will do. They convince themselves that they are right, even though they know they're wrong, but they'll never admit it, and they'll continue to perpetuate the lie again and again and again until such time as everybody believes the lie. You were around him for a long time when he said a lot of things that were not true. Did he believe (laughs) the not-truth rings he was saying when you were around him? No, but what he does is he will then convince himself by saying it over and over and over. It's It's a Stalinistic approach. Ellie, if I can bring you back in. Sorry, I'm a narcissistic sociopath. Is that a viable defense in courtroom? Because that's what Michael Cohen just said. I I don't think it is. And I want to make it clear. You can't just say, well, my attorney told me something. Hence, it's over. You can't get away with anything. It has to be within the realm of reason. You can't say my attorney told me it was okay to shoot that person, to rob a bank. And so there will be an argument about was this advice at least reasonably plausible. But look, Donald Trump, Michael Cohen knows this. You live this. Donald Trump is expert at using his attorneys as blast shields, right? Uh, yes, as scapegoats. Yeah. He will also then turn around and he will attack um, General Milley. He will attack um, Alyssa Farragut. Yes, yes. But yeah. that's what he does. He starts it off with the attack. He continues the attack. He gets his acolytes in order to continue the attack, in order to discredit them. And he will continue to do this and claim, they just have an axe to grind with me. They don't want me to be president again because I fired them. Or he'll make up some story that we all know is not true, but he will try to convince you that that story is true. So Jared Kushner was in the hot seat before the grand jury. Someone you know also. How do you think he felt about being there? So this is puzzling to me because we all have to acknowledge that Jack Smith is a consummate professional. And being someone who has been before the grand jury, why would Jack Smith bring Jared Kushner? You weren't before this grand jury. No, okay. to a different grand jury, to the uh, Manhattan yeah. DA. Why would, why would Jack Smith bring Jared Kushner to the table unless he already knew what Jared is going to say? And Ellie, of course, could well, speak to that uh, at greater length. But 
there's no way that Jack Smith brought Jared in there to impeach, you know, the information or the testimony that he has. That's just not how the grand jury system works. So the reason you put Jared Kushner in the, in the grand jury is to find out what he has to say. Sometimes you can use the grand jury to explore. Sometimes you take a witness who you know might be a problem for you, you might give testimony favorable to the defendant. Great. Let me find that out now. Let me know what's coming. And I think all of this really sort of highlights why this is a more difficult case when we get to intent than the documents case, right? The documents case, you can prove his intent by the fact that he had it, by his statements, by his effort to obstruct, by the uh, audio tapes of mm-hmm. him talking about the information. It, it's a good example of why this is a trickier case for, pro- not a possible, but trickier case for prosecutors. I agree with him. I can't argue with Ellie on that one. Jared Kushner, um, how do you think he feels about being pulled back in like Godfather 3? Every time he thinks he's out, he's back, you know, he gets pulled back in. Sure. Uh, he's unhappy about it. Look, the entire familial relationship has gone south. You see Jared and Ivanka uh, stepping away. And I said it on uh, a CNN program with Allison Camrata about a year ago that I do believe that Jared and Ivanka were the inside moles. Um, not that I have any information to prove it. But you think they were the ones yes. talking to? Yes, because Jared does not want to see the inside of a prison cell. He knows what it's like through his father's eyes. His he knows how difficult yeah. it was for him and his siblings. He doesn't want to do the same thing to his children. I've always believed it, especially the fact that Jared was always known in the White House as the secretary of everything. And with all the things that went on, how come there's no investigation into Jared? He comes out several months later. He's got $2 billion from the Saudis, a couple hundred million from the other Gulf Coast countries. There's no investigation into, into the relationship between him and Saudi when he has absolutely no capability and he has never run anybody's money before, to the point that the finance committee of the Saudi Investment Authority said, he doesn't meet our criteria until Mohammed bin Salman turned around and said, no, no, give him the money. But there's no investigation. There is one thing you just said, Ellie, that I, that I want you to weigh in on here, because Michael was suggesting that Jared will tell the truth or say whatever is really happening to the prosecutors because he doesn't want to end up in prison because his father, Charlie Kushner, did serve time. So Jared's going to be careful to be honest to the investigators. Doesn't that mean if he's telling them that Donald Trump always believed he won the election? Yeah, Um There are things you have to tell the truth about and things that you know that nobody's going to be able to cross-check, right? Right. And so there's a difference between sort of lying about a disprovable fact versus maybe shading your impression of what may have been in someone's mind. And the reporting is that it was always Jared's impression that Donald Trump actually thought he won. That's a little different than him saying, you know, we had a a heart-to-heart about it and he he was Mm -hmm. absolutely convinced. Again, you've been around him a long time. Does he slip up and say things like Alyssa? Our friend Alyssa Farah is saying that, you know, I can't believe I lost to this guy. Do you think it's plausible that he at some point during that three-month interregnum said, yeah, I lost, or this really pisses me off? Oh, absolutely. And he probably sat there moaning and groaning and crying to multiple, to anybody that would listen. That's just how he does. He will speak to anyone in order to um, put out a grievance or to complain about something which is probably what, how could I have lost? I did, you know, I, I can't believe that I lost to him. Well, he'll turn around and he'll say that he never believed it. And again, as Ellie just said, it's one of those facts that's not provable unless he comes out and he tells the truth. And you know, Donald is never going to tell the truth. Okay, Ellie. So if the special counsel has been going down these various avenues, 
and has sort of conflicting testimony about whether Donald Trump said or didn't say that he lost the election, believed or didn't believe he lost the election. Does that close off any avenue of prosecution? No, not necessarily. Um, If you have testimony that's a mixed bag like that, you do have the right and the discretion as a prosecutor to say, not just I believe side A as opposed to side B, but I think side A is more reasonable and backed up by other evidence. But this is important. If, as a prosecutor, you get evidence that's favorable to a defendant, you have to turn that over. Uh, that is part of your obligation. Not, not unless it's the Southern District of New York. <laughs> well, this, gets, Michael Cohen. this gets into oh, Michael's beef on We're not even going to go there. Yeah. Are, there are, are there crimes that the special counsel could prosecute that would not re- require belief or knowledge that he lost the election? Yeah, I think there are. I mean, even if Donald Trump genuinely thought he won the election, there is a point that you cannot go beyond. You cannot threaten an election official. You cannot extort or shake down an election official, even if you think you've actually won. Yeah, and Donald doesn't care about rules and he doesn't care about the law. He will push that limit to the line, past the line, and then pass that line and then try to pull it back and claim that it wasn't me. It was somebody else. Ellie, news late today that the special counsel's office has filed before the judge its argument that the trial in the Mar-a-Lago documents case should not be delayed until after the election, which is the Trump team, what they say they want to do. And it's a pretty, you know, some people described it as, you know, a scathing response. They note that there isn't as much testimony and documents to go through, that there isn't as much footage to go through as the defense team says that, you know, they can seat a jury in time. What about this? It's a lukewarm response, in my view. It's not a ripping apart, in my view. Look, let, let's just look at this objectively. Donald Trump's team has said, for, let's forget about the political issue. Just pure facts here. Donald Trump's defense team says, we've been given 800,000 documents, nine months of video footage. There is no trial that has gone to trial from indictment to trial in anything like six months. They give examples of cases that took three years. And really, all the DOJ says, there's some sharp language, but they say, yeah, there's 800,000 documents, but we told them which 4,000 are the most important. That doesn't cut it. You still have to go through them all as a defense lawyer. And I should say, even DOJ is unable to show a single classified documents that ever went to trial in six months. Does Donald Trump think he's ever going to trial on this? What he is going to try to do is right out of the Trump playbook, delay, delay, delay in the action where he's suing me for $500 million. As the plaintiff, we've now asked for his deposition. Delay, delay, delay. They want to do it 90 days after the election. Well, who brings a case and then decides that they want to do it 90 days after the election, which is like in 17 months? I mean, that's the Donald Trump playbook. In his mind, he thinks that he's going to be able to delay the system They'll do whatever they can. He'll have his lawyers file more frivolous actions and motions until such time as the campaign will be in full force. He'll be it'll already be Super Tuesday. It'll be, uh, you know, he'll be right heavy on the trail and he'll claim that it's unfair that they're impeding on his ability to run. Michael Cohen, thanks so much for coming in. Ellie Honig, as always, appreciate your work. Kessler. All right. So next, why are Ron DeSantis donors sniffing around elsewhere? A. He's being manhandled by Donald Trump. B, the war on woke. C, he's a little awkward. D, why pick a fight with Disney? Welcome back to CNN Tonight, or CNN Very Nearly Tomorrow. And tomorrow, Ron DeSantis is in Iowa, probably hoping it gets easier to be Ron DeSantis. Because at this moment, it seems awkward. Look at the headlines tonight from Politico. Top donors souring on DeSantis. 
from NBC. Confidential DeSantis campaign memo looks to reassure donors amid stumbles. From Rolling Stone earlier, Murdoch's start to sour on DeSantis. They can smell a loser. You know the old saying, with Fox like this, who needs enemies? That is, well, awkward. The terrific political reporter McKay Coppins notes, quote, anything could happen, but it's remarkable how the DeSantis hype cycle has followed the 2015 Scott Walker trajectory almost beat for beat. Now, that is not a comparison any Republican would want. Walker went nowhere. He's on the Mount Rushmore of GOP candidates who were supposed to be all that and turned out all dud. Jeb Bush, exclamation point. You can clap now. Or or for history buffs, John Connolly in 1980, who spent upwards of $11 million, that's $40 million in today's dollars, and famously ended up with a single delegate, Ida Mills of Arkansas. That's a lot of shade for DeSantis, who is still number two in all the polls with all kinds of money. But the Politico piece says donors' quote, faith in the Florida governor has been shaken by early campaign missteps in his hardline positions on abortion, transgender rights, and other culture war issues. So that might be the why, but how about the what next? Well, CNN has confirmed that donors, including one-time DeSantis backers, are meeting with South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Now, both DeSantis and Tim Scott will be at the Family Leadership Summit tomorrow in Iowa. Yes, tomorrow's news tonight. Uh, And that could be awkward. Why? Because NBC reports there is this new DeSantis campaign memo that mentions Scott. It reads, quote, while Tim Scott has earned a serious look at this stage, his bio is lacking the fight that our electorate is looking for in the next president. We expect Tim Scott to receive appropriate scrutiny in the weeks ahead. So if you follow, follow the bouncing ball there, DeSantis donors meet with Scott. DeSantis campaign swipes at Scott. There are few coincidences in politics. So just how awkward will it be in Iowa? With me now, Jay Michelson. He's a Rolling Stone columnist and David Urban, a CNN political commentator and former Trump campaign advisor. Gentlemen, appreciate you being with us. I'm going to ask this if you'll bear with me in the form of multiple choice questions because we've been doing that. I love it. Why are DeSantis donors sniffing around elsewhere? A, because he's being manhandled by Donald Trump. B, because of the war on woke. C, because he's a a little awkward. And D, you know, why pick a fight with Disney? (laughs) Where's where's all the above? above. Yeah, exactly. Where's all the above? You can pick pick that. Where's all the above? (laughs) You know, interesting, John, in that you talked about the NBC reporting earlier in this piece here. If you read the memo, the memo itself that says that it was embargoed for DeSantis' friends and family, the, the, the strategy is to um, do more earned media and, and, and educate more electorate about the, the benefits of Ron DeSantis. One, that he's a veteran, and two, that he's a dad. And when they find that out, he's going to magically rise in the polls. That's what the, basically the memo said. And it says, we're saving our money. We're not going to put any money to Super Tuesday. We're going to focus on these early states. And I've got probably a little bit of news that they're not going to have to worry about Super Tuesday if they don't get focused on these early states and, uh, and do a little better than just being a dad and a veteran. So... Uh, we'll see. You know, it's a long way away, but uh, things aren't going so well. I mean, right every can- I've covered a lot of campaigns, yeah. and, and in every campaign that's not going well, at one point the campaign staff says, if they only knew the candidate better, <laughs> he'd be doing better. Although in this case, it, it actually doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, the more voters get to know Rod DeSantis, the more he can seem a little bit off or a little bit awkward and not quite, you know, he maybe looks better on, on paper than actually in person. And, you know, personally for me, I, I feel a sort of mixed, you know, mixed emotions. On the one hand, you know, DeSantis was kind of a weak candidate. So as someone on the progressive side, I would have loved to see him in the general. On the other hand, this is someone who was causing real harm 
to vulnerable populations. You know, and I was concerned, you know, being in the LGBTQ community myself and caring about these issues, I was really worried. You know, these are people aren't really quite all on the same page around these issues. And there's a lot of space for a respectful disagreement. But DeSantis didn't do that, right? He went way to the extreme, banning books and banning all kinds of medical care and just going way, way beyond where the center is. And so I'm gratified, really, that that's been rejected. But that yeah. really yeah. is upsetting to donors, Republican I, I, donors? You know, I don't know. Here, here's another interesting thing to just think about, right? So 2020 elections, uh, 20, 22 elections occur. Ron DeSantis is the hero, Yeah, right? he did great. He's the hero of 22, right? Trump is blamed for the, the downfall of the party. And, you know, that's so November, the day after the election, Ron DeSantis is going to be president. And then he did something that's very unusual. And if he doesn't become the president, I think they're going to look back and, and lament this. He said, I'm not going to get in until after the legislative session's over. Right. And then it kind of just everything just went quiet in DeSantis world. Right. And then Trump got indicted. He became super popular again. And people forgot about Ron DeSantis. And when he got in the race, it was kind of already baked at this point. Right. So that period, that interregnum there, I think is going to come back to haunt him. What's the thing? Nature abhors a vacuum. He left a vacuum there. All right. Question number two. So why is Tim Scott a unique threat to Ron DeSantis? A, because he's more likable, if you believe that. B, because he represents the new Republican Party. C, because South Carolina is a key early state. And D, because he has some establishment support. There are people in the Senate who like Tim Scott. He's also, what is he not, right? He's not a sort of strident culture warrior. I mean, we were talking before we came on. His positions actually are, you know, on the conservative end of the party. But he's not sort of staking out this kind of very coarse uh, position like DeSantis did. So he's got a softer touch. He's got a more appealing, it seems, personality. Look, he has a compelling personal narrative. As a progressive, are you more scared about Tim Scott? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm scared and not scared, right? It's, it's hard. For, it's tough for progressives of this election. On the one hand, right, you know, you want to keep the White House. On the other hand, the risk of having Donald Trump be the nominee is so terrifying. It literally keeps me up at night. You can vote for Cornell West. He's going to be president. <laughs> he was just, he was just <laughs> on with Caitlin Collins a short time ago. I want to jump ahead to some reporting from Isaac Dover of CNN, some terrific reporting on angst within the Democratic Party uh, about the Biden campaign. A couple quotes from this piece, from Isaac's piece. Quote, if Trump wins next November and everyone says, how did it happen? One of the questions will be, what was the Biden campaign doing in the summer of 2023? Here's another quote. I'm not sure which is harder, getting people to focus on the campaign or getting people excited about it. So, multiple choice. The Democratic concerns about the Biden campaign are A, spot... I think because we talk too much on these things, so now they're, we have to only say one letter. That's, that's a, 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 spot on. B, predictable, because these are Democrats after all. C, what you get with an 80-year-old candidate. D, an example of how people have underestimated Biden again and again. Look, I don't think this is necessarily about age specifically. You know, Paul McCartney's 82, Bob Dylan's 83. Everybody is different. But the fact is that Joe Biden does not seem to have the kind of control that he used to have. He doesn't seem to have the sharpness that he used to have. And it's very, you know, we have to be careful. We don't want to sort of stigmatize somebody based on their age. At the same time, this is a reality with this candidate that we don't know how he's going to perform on a debate stage. We don't know who, who he's even going to be, let's say, 12 months from now. And it's very worrying because so much feels at stake, especially if he's running against Donald Trump. David, they well, did count yeah, him out yeah, before yeah, South Carolina yeah, last yeah, time. But, and so, some of the reporting the, in, in the CNN piece, right, Axe, David Axelrod, our colleague, has, you know, said to me personally, and in this reporting, is very concerned, right? There's no, there's no apparatus around Biden. He's not raising money. He doesn't have staff. It doesn't give the appearance that he's running by but what he's putting together. And people are going to look at the numbers, the fundraising numbers that are going to come out. They're going to compare them to Obama numbers and say, look, he's a sitting president. He should have raised more money. What's he doing? So I think there's a, there's, there's a great reason to be alarmed. Plus, he's using the baby stairs on Air Force One every day now. 
I mean, there's a lot of stairs. I mean, you know, I'd take the elevator if I could. All right, David J., great to see you both. Thank you so much for playing. I really appreciate it. So you want to leave a bag of cocaine somewhere where you'll never get caught? How about the White House? That's next. In The Breakfast Club, Judd Nelson hides his bag of illegal drugs down the pants of Anthony Michael Hall. It worked, but barely. It turns out a much safer place to hide your stash is the White House. Last night, we told you tomorrow's news would be about the bag of cocaine found at the White House, and now tomorrow is tonight, and the Secret Service says they don't know who left the cocaine there, and they will never know who left the cocaine there. Who needs your best friend's sock drawer when you have 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? They said too many people pass by the spot it was found. There's no identifying evidence on the bag itself and no cameras pointed at the cubby where it was discovered. Let's bring in CNN law enforcement analyst and former Secret Service agent Jonathan Wackrow. Um, I, I think the question a lot of people have is, you know, OK, really? Now what? I mean, really? I mean, it, let's just say part of it. No camera pointed anywhere near the cubby where it was found. Are there, is there anywhere in the White House that's a blind spot like that? I well, listen, so. it is a blind spot, uh, but it's a blind spot by design. And, you know, when you look at the hearing that they had today, the briefing, part of it was behind closed doors, but part of it was classified. And there's a reason why there are cameras in certain locations at the White House that are part of the security structure and not in others. Now, I have, you have to think about what the location that uh, this item was found in the cubby right on the ground floor of the West Wing. Who comes in and out of that door? What meetings are being held right there? Do you want those interactions video recorded? Um, Because people who are coming in may be going to the Situation Room. They may be intelligence officials that are meeting with maybe foreign counterparts. So there's there's a design to the White House in, in this instance, that design didn't pick up a criminal act. From a threat perspective, the White House you know, is extremely secure. They address their threats every single day, whether they're weapons, explosives, chemical, biological, radiological. From a criminal aspect, the Secret Service now has to go back and redesign some programs to make sure this doesn't happen again. All right, hold that thought for a second. I want to play some reaction from a Republican congressman to this revelation or lack of a revelation today. Listen. <laughs> They don't know who it is, and they, they, it's a complete failure. I mean, this thing is, is ridiculous. All right, so to what extent is that political outrage versus procedural outrage? What's the right thing for oversight purposes to be mad about when it comes yeah. to this? So let's define what failure is, right? The, 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 the primary remit of the Secret Service at the White House is to ensure that the complex and the president is protected from threats. This, the introduction of cocaine into this environment was a criminal act. It's not primarily what they do. So if you're saying that the Secret Service failed, no. On the identification of this substance, they thought it was a threat. They thought it was ricin or anthrax. They took every appropriate measure to mitigate that situation and secure the White House. Once it was determined that it was a, uh, a substance that was not of harm to the, the complex or the president, then it became a criminal investigation. So where is the failure? Is the failure in the criminal investigation? Because the Secret Service laid out why today 
they couldn't solve and make attribution. One, there were no forensic evidence. If there's no latent prints, there's no DNA evidence, and there's no video evidence, how are you uh, able to identify the pool of almost 600 potential people as to who did it in the attribution there? The reality is, and the Secret Service had been telegraphing the difficulty of this investigation from day one on making attribution, you just may not be able to solve it. You think it's going to be harder to get cocaine into the White House after this? I think it's going to be slightly harder, John, (laughs) slightly harder. (laughs) Just wanted to know, for factual purposes. Jonathan Wackerow, great to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. So on the run and potentially armed and dangerous, officials are warning Pennsylvanians who might be planning on hiking or camping in the woods to watch out for an escaped inmate. What could possibly go wrong? Planning a trip to the Pennsylvania woods this weekend? Well, police would like you to keep an eye out for any trace of an escaped inmate who could be in the wild. Now, I don't want to make light of it, but what could possibly go wrong? As people are out hiking or biking or whatever in the, in the woods and um, through the area in the coming days, particularly with the weekend, there'll be an influx of people. We're asking them to just um, be alert to anything like that. And if they see something, um, give us a call. So they are still searching for the escaped inmate whom they believe to be armed and extremely dangerous. Take a look at Michael Charles Burham. Police say he escaped through a hole in the prison's rooftop, dropping down using bed sheets tied together. And new tonight, this stockpile you're looking at right there is one reason why authorities believe he is still in the Pennsylvania area. I want to bring in CNN senior law enforcement analyst Chief Charles Ramsey. Chief, thanks so much for being with us. The stockpiles that we just showed there are thought to be Burham's. How significant is that? Well, it's very significant, and it leads them to believe that he's still in that area. The question is, how did he get that particular stockpile? I mean, did someone provide it for him? Does he have an accomplice? Did he steal it? Uh, But they believe he's still in the area. I'm sure they've run a a forensic analysis on the items that they found to determine whether or not it belongs to him or not. You know, latent prints, uh, DNA things like that. And I would uh, I would bet that they have found something pretty significant that really leads them to believe that he's still in that area. You heard the warning to people who might be hiking in the woods this week and also the, the you know the call for help for people who might be there. What concerns you most about the fact that he could be hiding out where other people might be? Well, he's apparently a pretty dangerous individual and if you're out there and uh, camping or whatever, I mean, he's trying to survive. I mean, I don't think he would be above taking a hostage, certainly uh, stealing other items so he can continue to survive. Uh, People need to really pay attention to their surroundings there. If it were me, I don't think I'd be camping in that park uh, this particular weekend until they find this guy. But this is such a huge expanse. I mean, it's right at the Allegheny National Forest, which is about a million acres or so. So it's almost impossible to totally shut it down keep people from going in there um, completely. But uh, they're going to do what they can to try to alert people, uh, make them aware that this individual is potentially out there. And anything at all that seems suspicious, they should give police a call Mm -hmm. immediately. So one of the the quirky things about this case is, is officials saying they're looking into a drone that was heard flying immediately adjacent to the jail just before the escape. So why might that be relevant? Well, I mean, they're looking into the possibility that he had an accomplice. This was a planned escape and not just something that just randomly happened. 
I mean, it's not easy to get out of a detention facility. And this person was able to not only get out, but do it fairly quickly. My understanding is a guard actually saw on video that he was attempting to escape. And by the time he was able to alert other guards, he was already gone. So they're looking at that possibility. Did he have help from the inside? someone from the outside. So that would play into that theory. And that's why they're trying to trace uh, the source of that particular drone to see whether or not that leads them anywhere. How long do you think this manhunt might last? I don't know. The longer it goes, the more difficult it becomes. I mean, it's like every other criminal investigation that you have. You know, you want to try to wrap it up as quickly as possible. Um, Hopefully they can contain him in this area because as more time it goes by, steal a car you could do a variety of things to get out of the area and of course then that just expands the search grid uh into other states other jurisdictions uh and it just makes it more difficult chief charles ramsey always great to see you thank you so much thank you so can't wait for a new season or your favorite tv show well you might be out of luck because the actors are joining the writers on strike Tonight, I hope you like reading or public vivisection, because that is what you might soon be doing for entertainment. Today, the main actors union, SAG-AFTRA, voted to go on strike, joining the Writers Guild. This is the first time they've both walked together since 1960, when SAG was led by known leftist Ronald Reagan. Their issues include wages, a bigger slice of streaming revenue, and safeguards against artificial intelligence taking their jobs, which is notable, given the limits of Arnold Schwarzenegger's acting in The Terminator. (laughs) Hasta la vista, baby. That aside, for writers and actors, these are serious issues. Existential, they say, and not likely to be solved anytime soon, which means a complete halt of scripted entertainment on screens. TV and movies, gone. Nothing new. Which is why you might need to find a good book, which it turns out we're not doing so much anymore. In a recent Gallup poll, Americans say they read an average of 12.6 books a year, or did during the past year, That's the lowest number since they started counting. One study found Americans spend just 15 minutes a day reading. That's not going to fill the hole, so what will? For that, we did some internet research on what people did for leisure before TV and movies. The Library of Congress has all kinds of information about leisure time. So one thing, swimming. Great, except for the sharks and sea otters attacking surfboards, which is really happening in California. (laughs) Roller skating. It's a fad the Library of Congress says that began in the 1880s and is still precious today. And then the Internet turned out this leisure time favorite from the 1740s and 50s. Attending public dissections. Watching corpses get taken apart. Public dissections were a big deal then. So much so, they needed new space to do it. There was actually a boom in building what are called anatomical theaters. Seriously. One built in Paris in 1744, quote, is said to have had concentric rows of seats with a high balcony supported by eight Doric columns in a notable vaulted basement. Originally, it could accommodate 180 people. So that is life without scripted television. For more... Let's bring in our senior data reporter, Harry. So this is why it's so important, Harry. Look, how much time do Americans spend watching TV? So Nielsen had a study out from the last quarter of last year. It was 294 minutes on average per day. 294 minutes. That is not one hour. That's not two hours. That's not three hours. That's not four hours. It's more 
than five hours. This includes streaming, obviously, basically anything that's connected to your television. So this, my dear friend, could be a disaster because what are we going to do? We're going to do reading? I don't think we're going to be doing Well, that's reading. what I was saying. 15 minutes a day is what most people do. That's not going to fill the void. No, it ain't going to fill the, fill the void. I'm honestly hoping that maybe a few more people, you know, will not only read, but maybe watch a little news, say. Eh? Oh, I think that'd be a great thing. Yes. Look, though, strikes have happened before. We've seen them with the actors. We've seen them yeah. with the writers one time together in 1960. How does it tend to change what's on air? Yeah, you know, there are a few things. Uh, number one, you know, go back to a strike in the uh, late 80s, I believe it was a writer's strike. And what we saw was the development of the show. Cops actually came on the air because of the writer's strike. It was a direct uh, delineation from it. Uh, Mission Impossible made a reoccurrence. They reimagined Mission Impossible on television because they were able to reuse the scripts from the 1960s. Uh, Moonlighting, which was a great show, obviously, with Bruce Willis. Uh, that show basically went adios amigos in part because they just couldn't get the scripts going on time. It was one of those shows where they wrote up until the last minute, and it was just one of those things where Moonlighting went adios in part because of that strike. You know, look, it has a big impact. And I, by the way, it's not clear that there's going to be a solution anytime soon. In the past, what types of changes have people made to their behavior? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I think is just so important to realize about this strike versus ones in the past is times have changed, John. For example, the last time that there was a writer's strike, I was in college. Uh, but it's also about what our viewing habits and what we have changed there, right? So, like, streaming was not really a thing. YouTube was not a thing really back in 2008, right? So, in 2007. In fact, the percentage of Americans who watch stuff on YouTube, get this, back in 2007, 2008, it was only about 11% of Americans. Mm. Now... We're up to the upper 70s on that measure. So perhaps people will go and use YouTube more. You know, another thing you were mentioning, John, was reading, right? Fewer Americans are reading than ever before. So, you know, right now, the percentage of Americans who read at least a little bit per day is less than 20%. Now, that's not particularly high. It was higher back in the early 2000s when it was a little bit closer to 30% of Americans. So the fact is, you know, we're talking about reading... I'm not sure Americans are going to do that, but they may go watch some fun clips on YouTube, perhaps some moonlighting clips. I do love that theme song. And again, we're talking about a lot of people and their livelihood. There are a lot of jobs on the line here, so yeah. hopefully they'll reach a solution soon. Harriet, and thank you very much for all this. Thank we you, We'll watch sir. Moonlighting together. So as always, I asked for threads. Uh, and this time I asked for you to give me advice on how to sign off tonight. So this comes from Command3RZN3R. That's a heck of a screen name. <laughs> Right, uh, And I did use an earlier version of the show, but I love it so much I'm going to say it again right now. So here we go. That's all for us. I'm John Berman, and tomorrow is now tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.